That's what they say. Hard work, work. Hard work. I earn my pay. Hard work, work. Hard work. Do it every day. All right. Welcome to another Work Ethic Podcast. I'm really excited. I'm here with Nick Smoot, uh, who is becoming a friend over the last year or so. Um, I'm going to start with just a kind of a summary right off uh, Nick's LinkedIn as a start out and then tell you a little bit about how I got to know this guy. Nick is a globally respected culture first community and economic strategist. He's an entrepreneur, venture, venture capital investor, real estate developer, and ecosystem builder. His work in startup ecosystems has been recognized by organizations like Google, Brookings, Milken Institute, and Bloomberg. He's been interviewed by Bloomberg West, BBC, USA Today, Entrepreneurship Magazine, and Fast Company. And, and now he can add to that list the Work Ethic Podcast. Uh, I connected with Nick early last year. I actually, after reading Bology's book, The Network State, I found a list of initiatives on a dashboard on the Network State uh, website. And as I clicked through it, I found among those groups, a real affinity with what was called the Build Republic or Build Cities Network. Uh, so I joined the Discord server. I introduced myself and it wasn't long before I was on a call with Nick and Angelo. And then during that call, I learned that Nick was also a founder of something called the Innovation Collective. Uh, and then they were working in Brooksville, a town just to the north of me. And he invited me to a weekend summit that they were hosting uh, right around the corner. So I was able to go up and join them, meet Nick in person. And then one last thing, and then I'll just throw it to you to kind of say what you want about yourself. But Nick is also a recent author, uh, an incredible book that just came out uh, called Better, which kind of lays out an, an approach to harmonize kind of economic and strategic goals that companies and cities have with profound cravings that humans have that maybe are not being met currently in cities around the world. Nick, thank you. I've been looking forward to doing this with you. Uh, why don't you take the ball, just introduce yourself as, as you would like to sure. everyone, and we'll just wrap from there. Yeah, John, I'm jacked to be here, and um, thanks for the super kind intro and weaving in the book. Um, it's funny, I wouldn't call myself an author, um, but it's cool to be like, I'm an author. I've actually never said that publicly, ever. It's not come out of my mouth yet. Um, so, I, and I do appreciate your framing of my, my goal in the book. I think the only thing to to tag into it, man, is I'm just, I'm long on people. I always have been. Uh, I was raised that way. My mom had me working with kids who were uh, Down syndrome and autistic when I was three, uh, taking me into the community college to go be a student role model with these other kids that I just saw as my friends. And then uh, have always worked with kids who are in wards of the state, uh, different orphan programs across the globe. Um, high schoolers who were troubled kids performed suicides for, uh, or suicide funerals for, sorry, funeral for families um, that had teens who committed suicide and performed any suicides um, to be quite frank, <laughs> but all sorts of uh, just beliefs that like life's hard. It doesn't have to be that way. And there probably is a better way. And I think that's really you and I jam on that, man, is that, uh, there's a better way, and a lot of the world that's built around us is not that way. So pumped to be here. Dude, I love it. Well, since you went ahead and jumped into some of the early childhood, like I'm three, and sure. I'm, mom's got me working in these places. Um, you know, in this show, a lot of what I'm doing is exploring humans' relationship with work as such. And cool. uh, so one of the things I try to ask everybody is, like, if you go as far back as you can remember – the concept of work or the word work or whatever, when, how did that concept begin to take shape or meaning yeah. in your life as far back? 
And so if you're at three kind of going in and, and doing some of this work, perhaps you're there, perhaps your memory goes even earlier, but I'd love to hear some of the early genesis of what might become your understanding of what work is. This is, this is a great question and I like it because I already have somewhat of a formulated thought, which is the difference between work and service. And so I viewed my time in exchange. This was just like life. This was service. This was my, my friend group. This was how I spent time in a structured way to create value, like intentional time. That was value for me, value for them. So that's like the earliest. And then when I was in middle school, I was asked to be a camp counselor for a program that had kindergartners that were wards of the state. So I'm straight up sixth grade running part of a summer camp as a, a again, somewhat of a role model. I'm being paid this time, like six sign off paid from my parents. Um, and so again, my idea of work was like, it's woven into my identity and someone sought me out. It was like, Hey, we want you to come and perform this task, but it was more of a, like a joyful opportunity to use my, like my, my being, my, my essence. Right. And then 16, I uh, was like, all right. And I'd been mowing lawns. Right. Like that was more like work doing my chores. It was funny. Like I was like, all right, I had to pick up dog poop and dust. I was like chores, shovel snow, didn't get paid, but I did it for my family. And then, then it was like mowing for other people. I made some money. That was work. My other stuff wasn't work. Even though I got paid for it a little bit here and there, like it wasn't work. And then I got into doing, uh, I, I got a job at an Italian restaurant at a resort where I was an assistant server. So I'd like bus, bring out food, kind of reset tables, take, take dishes back to the, the dish tank. And that was work for money, like an exchange of like my time for money, like no soul, really. So it's funny, I viewed those as jobs and work. The other things I viewed as like an aligned mission that I made money on. And then while I was there, I found a way to harmonize both. Mm. So I'm at this Italian restaurant and I start, my brain starts going where I'm like, there's gotta be a better way to like run this restaurant. It's kind of slow in the winters. What can I do? And I'm 16. You're how old at this point? 16, 16. I'm sure the owners love this. The, the 16 year old bus boy is trying to figure out how we can run our place better. <laughs> Legit, right? So, so <laughs> hold my beer. So this kid goes, what if we start a delivery program? They only deliver pizza in town. What if we could deliver like lasagna and pasta to people's houses? This is, I don't know, the 90s in a town of 30 some thousand people. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, let's do this because it was tied to this resort. So they had these shuttle vans that were supposed to run and go pick people up from places like I'll borrow a shuttle van. I'll build the marketing. I'll do the newspaper ads. I'll run this whole thing. I'll set it up for you. I just want to be your delivery driver. And I get to set my schedule and I get to keep my tips because you didn't get great tips as a busboy. And so busboy at 16, this guy's like, fine, whatever, dude. So legit set this whole thing up. I'm making like 50 to 60 bucks an hour at 16 all of a sudden. I'm crushing, dude. <laughs> crushing. And like, going out to boat docks and I went out to all, there's like a lake here. So I set out all the menus on the boat docks and everyone had their yachts. So when it came back to like summertime or like their big houseboats, all of a sudden word got out. Here's this crew that'll deliver. 
And like people around the lake would order pasta in the winter and like all over town was on you. And the orders were more expensive because it was like more expensive items than pizza. And so now I'm, I'm just like, I'm not cooking it. I'm not serving a table. I just pick up a phone, take the order. I'm like, yep, we'll be there. And I'm hiring a staff and a team, schedule myself out. And so I would take the best days and I knew which ones they were. And then I would go to like, hit it up and get tipped. And sometimes you'd roll up, they'd give you, you know, some nice house, like a hundred bucks on like a $40, you know, pasta. And they're like, keep the change. Cause it was like people who wanted to hit up an Italian restaurant for delivery. And they wanted to show off some date night. Here's this like 16 year old kid or whatever. Amazing. And so I crushed it. And that was a moment where I was like, wait a second. I kind of found a way where it's like my creativity and like the transaction of work, the extraction of my, of my time and my, my muscle to do a task can also merge with like my mind and I can like optimize for the benefit of a shared mission, which kind of gets into like my book actually. So this is weird. Maybe that's how it all started, John, right there. Dude, there's so much in that early story, man. That's uh, so, okay. So when I ask a lot of people this question, uh, as you would imagine a common, um, I'll say what's your earliest memory of work. And someone will say, well, my first job was, you know, I was a bag boy or whatever, or I mowed lawns or I delivered mail or whatever. And, and they mean, you know, what, when I first got money for doing something for somebody else and we, and part of the like basic thesis of this entire show has been like recognizing there's some problematic. So, so, you know, you know, that I work with a lot of like unemployed people and it's like, look, dude, you need to work and no one's hiring. What does that have to do with working? You need to build something, do something, do something meaningful and contribute. It's, it's like, you need it. Like you need bread. And with the like coming of technology that looks like a lot of like humans need not apply for a lot of these uh, positions, let's say, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a bigger issue. So I wanted to start talking about our relationship with work. And so when I ask people that and they say my earliest job, I always push back and say, or, you know, we'll say like, hey, is there anything you worked hard at? Like, you know, whether it was physical, like, like sports or an instrument or an art or, you know, a relationship, you know, we work at all kinds of things. And, and interestingly in your question, so I want to like stay here for a minute because I'm fascinated already. So you said one, I love the, the definition kind of thing you, you, you kind of use. I don't even know if you meant it that way, but spent time to create value as opposed, and which is interesting because that could be money. That could be money. That could be something else entirely. But you said, I have a difference between work and service and you use the word work throughout. And you said, I was paid, but it was not work. And then I was, I was not, I was working, but it was not paid. And so I was like, oh, your definition of work seems to be distinct here. So I want you to like flesh it out a little bit for me so that we can be on defining of terms. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. Yeah. And and I have so many things like I want to dive into with you around this. So like you mentioned, you know, humans should not apply. I wrote an article that um, in the article, this is back in like 2016, I wrote the article uh, and it was that work is for the machines, uh, magic for the humans. Say it again. Work is for the machines, magic is for the humans. And and we can get into that one a little bit later, but... um, so you, you want me to unpack like my, my thoughts and definition around like the difference between work and service. Yeah. Well, yeah, yes, I do. Because yeah. and particularly, so work and service do that. 
And then I feel like it, maybe it's the same or maybe it's distinct, but the whole, like, I was doing this really hard work, you know, picking up dog poop, mowing lawns, whatever it was. And it wasn't paid, but it was work. So yeah. I hear like toil, maybe something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. This is good. And this then, and then, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I'm like, but then you're like, then I did this thing that was paid, which most people would call work, but it wasn't work. And yes. so, yeah, like it's, it's all in that mix. I can feel it. I can intuit it, but like, I want yep. you to like say it. Yeah. 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 So put some notes down too, the things yeah. I, want, I don't want to lose. Yeah, me too. So one of them, one of them there, when I think about work and I think about the American framing of work, mm. we got a lot of bullshit jobs that are theater. Mm -hmm. That we do inefficiently without rigor because we don't believe we're being compensated equitably or whatever it is. And so it's, it's theater or it's true theater, even in a company that like, we really don't need people to do it, but like, they just sit around their thumbs. We get like four good hours out of people at work. Mm -hmm. And then you have the rest of the time, they're just screwing around. And so when I think about the framing of American work and bullshit jobs and like most people, I think view work as some extractionary exchange of my creativity my energy physically, mentally, um, in exchange for your mission and your mm. profit. And then you give me my mouse nuts. And then I try and make, I try and have fun with my mouse nuts to make the pain go away that I do that shit. Mm -hmm. And that's the loop of late stage capitalism and like our current methodology and framing of work. And so when I say, Work is for the machines. What I mean by that is a lot of work is in, come back to bullshit jobs. A lot of work, task-based, repetitive things that we have humans do. Sometimes not even repetitive, but like task-based things. They're, they're not truly human. Mm -hmm. And so we have this weird conversation going on right now that's around what happens if AI and, and robots and automation take all the work? Such a good conversation. <laughs> and, and, and then it gets into this, like, we lose our humanity. Like, what do we want to let the, the work, the machines do? And the real question is, like, what percent of our current time spent doing these tasks is truly human? And don't hold on to what it gives you in the long haul. Don't hold on to an emotional tie. Don't hold on to the provisions you can create. Instead, do a big fat timeout and ask yourself, what part of this task resonates with the essence of my humanity? What other portions have I misused this bag of meat and magic to accomplish a task for a period of time? Prime example, we decided that um, minerals under the earth were fun and we could use them for shit. And so we're like, hey, let's shove humans under that ground. Could you go find that stuff and like drag it out? And we now have people legitimately that are fighting saying those are, those are meaningful jobs and good work. Like I get it because the emotional time, what it can provide and like time structured and spent structured time in an exchange for value for value that they can spend on value elsewhere. You're going to take this value extraction area. I'm going to get something back. I could spend over here to extract from something else. That's actually not humane. It's not a good use of the human. Right. And so when I say that, 
work is for the machines. I legit mean it. I'm kind of cool with like the machines taking back a lot of shit we turned humans into machines for. Yeah. Post-industrial revolution, we lost a lot of our, our magic in, in humanity. One of the most fascinating studies out of Manchester is that people, people became horrible problem solvers in Manchester. Manchester is the birthplace of the industrial revolution. And so after that hit post, people didn't know what to do because they were like, someone tells us what to do. We used to just like solve everything. We were Swiss Army nice. And like our humanity was a bit of this, a bit of that, a little magic. Like, boo, boo, boo. I was creative. I did tasks, but my tasks were very isolated. It wasn't like extractionary. I could do a sprint to dig a hole. I didn't dig holes for the rest of my life. Right? It's very different. Right? I dug a hole because it was a magical step in a bigger a piece of alchemy that I was participating with my other wizards and magicians to do a it thing. It is a very different thing. Was, I did different. a lot of digging last week because I'm building something at my house. And, okay. and that was meaningful because I'm creating a home. Uh, but the, to imagine doing that task at different properties every day for the rest of my life is unbelievably painful to imagine. It was painful to do, physical. but you can endure anyhow if you have a why, right? It's totally, like, totally, totally, yeah. totally, totally. And so when we come back to them, that earlier statement I said about like work versus service and then finding a way to kind of like harmonize what is work and what is like, what does it mean to be fully human? Service I view as a, a cause-based exchange that I believe in where I can give of my time, my money, my energy, an exchange of a bigger mission I believe in. And I receive value from that socially, financially, potentially um, mission that I share in. And so I'm exchanging this service and value. And so I believe coming back to then, all right, well then what is, what is, what do humans get used for? What's our, our primary work ethic, right? Well, we actually don't need a work ethic when we're like, we're lost to our muse, right? Like when we found something we actually believe in, like building work ethic, you got to tell people to go to bed, to stop working when they're like chasing something they believe in, right? Cause it now the muse has you, you're chasing something. And so this gets down to, what do I believe as humans? I believe that our task is actually to do alchemy, to use our, to be creators, to be creators, which means yeah. bring our full self to something we believe in. So what do we create? Our, our biggest, most beautiful uh, work is when we're doing magic, which is alchemy to create something we believe adds the most beauty and value to the world, either in that moment, or that we can see it's bigger part of the mission, or that like we, we buy into it. And so we, we're working on something we believe matters. We're working with people we like and trust. So community that has shared skills. We get to use our authentic skills on that thing we think that matters. So bring ourselves to it fully. And we get valued equitably for our contribution to that. Those are the four like criteria for like meaningful work, I believe to people. Mm. and and then you look at then all right well then what are the key rules of magic well it's using your authentic skills it's interpersonal communication it's grit not giving up too easily and problem solving skills because if you have those four you can apply that to anything and you can bring this like magical self to it and you're really dangerous when the whole world is machines out there like <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And like, literally, it's like, this is disturbing. I mean, we're, we're watching people who are prompt engineers becoming machines now too. Like people who are working with AI, they're just wrote for other people. They're, they're missing the point. It's truly, mm. it was so we can do alchemy on things that we love. So I'll shut up now because I've said a lot there. Dude, it's so good. Man, that's so good. So that's interesting. So another thing that I, has always really bothered me that I think comes up a lot that I think is implied in what you're saying. Um, if work understood in the way that you're talking about in terms of service and creativity and magic, um, being, I love how you said, like to be in the, in the grip of the, of the muse, like the muse has you. And like you said, we have to stop. We have to like people go to bed, stop, you know, it's like, like the flow state, right? It's like, I don't know what time it is. I'm not hungry. Nothing else matters. Like, like, and so the idea of something like work-life balance becomes a little absurd when like, this is like something that's growing out of my life. Like this is a concept, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about like, this is like in the self-care kind of like lens and language, but they're like, you know, work-life balance. But the the underlying assumption is somehow that work is separate from your life, totally, which does totally. tie in with the framing of work you're, you're, you're talking you about. When work, when work doesn't give you purpose, when you can't find purpose in your work, when you don't have a purpose in your why behind your work, yep, yep. if work doesn't give you passion, which means it's moving you towards your why, right? So a, mm-hmm. a direction and a, like a drive and then a sense of accomplishment that and like output of yourself that you're like, this is awesome. You don't get purpose. You don't get passion. You don't get pride. So if you don't have purpose, passion, and pride in, in like the, the exchange of your time, guess what? You need all that self-care shit because you commit suicide. And so literally we have a society of people who are, are misunderstanding the role mm-hmm. of work in capitalism that we're like to serve this thing. We're not here to serve capitalism. Economics and capitalism are here to actually unleash the magic in us so that we can create the tomorrow we want through community today. But instead we're feeding a consumption engine that is making us fat, poor, mentally insane, hating each other. And so like we're in this real tense moment. It's like, well, everyone just needs better better paying jobs. But, but do we? Like, right. Do we really just need better paying jobs or do we need to ask a deeper question of what does it truly mean to human and to human well? And, and that's where, you know, framing of work ethic and, uh, you know, all the other pieces. Yes, there's best practices and rhythms of life so that you can have a fulfilling life and be a person of character and have pride in yourself. Um, but a lot of that comes from having a, a muse that you can lose yourself to or find yourself in. You can use any language you like around that. And work can actually, something in your work, if you see it leading to that deeper purpose, which gets into my, my stack of like, we can talk about the how you find that and then how you then chase that. We have a whole framing around it. But at the end of the day, you, know, you, you need structure and character. But if you have your why, you're humbly, and if it's bigger than you, true mm-hmm. purpose, it's going to be way bigger than you, and it's not something that you can accomplish quickly. Yep. It's something you believe in that you need to add value and beauty to the world in, and so it becomes a zone of creation where you're going to make many projects from. It's a place that almost brings you to tears through life experience that you realize, this is my why, this is my purpose, this is the ground upon which I stand to create 
from. I'm a creator. The creator is awakened in me. Now your work is then the task of all these pieces of alchemy. You might write a children's book. You might build a building. You might start a nonprofit. You might write a piece of software. You might do this, but you're creating from a zone. Mm -hmm. And none of these can you accomplish on your own because you don't have all the skills, right? You can't solve this. So now you must humble yourself to get to the mountaintop on that journey. And so work is this journey that's so fulfilling of being humble and asking for help, not only in your professional skills, but to become a person of character, to become a person of rigor, to become a person of skills, well-rounded, you know, mentally, physically, everything, so that you can show up to chase that muse, to, to create from here, because your life now depends on, you have a why to get out of bed, a why to build community. And in that community that you're dependent upon, guess what? That's the community that you also serve. So now you're doing the same thing in exchange with them because they can look at you in the eye and say, this is what I want to create. That's most beauty and value. I need your help. So now we're back to, you know, I've been to Ebor, baby. I know about those little houses in Ebor where everyone got together and learned language and danced and played and took care of yeah. each other. It's like work is that in, in neighborhoods and we're lonely, right? 52% of Americans experience loneliness. Uh, depression is the number one cause of disability. Like, let's just be frank. Loneliness is pretty easy to solve. It's not rocket science, but they don't know how to solve it. So instead we go and consume together. Let's go to a concert. Let's go to a bar. It's like, no, you crave co-creation, not co-consumption, you idiots. Mm. And then secondarily, all right, well, if depression is the number one disability right now globally, depression is literally your mind, your body saying to you, please stop humaning how you're humaning. You're not getting enough sleep. You're not eating the right foods. You're not hydrating well. Your thought loops are shit. Your chemistry's off. And pills will never solve depression, only pattern change. And so when we look at this whole loop of work, work ethic, all these things, like I, I go so hard on this, but like deaths of despair are scary. The data is scary, but really we need to reclaim our social time to be co-creation time. That's work time that we believe in. It's alive. We may do this for a job to pay for a house and food. You better show up and do the hard work. And maybe someday we'll have the luxury that we'll have a project-based incentive instead of a universal basic income, which is dehumanizing, by the way. And a project-based incentive is restructuring welfare, social security, philanthropy, R&D dollars to fund everyone to do projects they believe in, in accountability and in structure. We have a whole system for that. I've been baking for years. Hmm. Maybe someday we'll all get that grant that that is what we do for, for our humaning on this earth to make the earth a more magical place. But until then, do your job. And then restructure your time away from your job to do this alchemy with people you love. And you will find yourself happier, sleeping better, more alive. Or you can watch more Netflix and YouTube and get drunk and go to a sports ball game and feel like, oh, my pulse went up because shit's fun. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. All right. So I'm, I was really fascinated. I'm going to pivot us a little bit. You're, you're, you're this Italian restaurant. You're this yeah. adult, you're this kid server, and you have this idea, which sounds like one, you brought up, the owner somehow said yes to it. You were able to execute on it. You it made good money. Um, and you were able to start building team around, which just one, that's an incredible story. That just that alone, that's price of admission. That's just such an incredible story. I'm I'm glad everyone's here to hear just that that vignette. But also knowing you've built many things over time and, and, you know, even at the top of your kind of like summary is kind of entrepreneur. And I think there's, 
you see that really early here, right? Some kind of, and, and so I'm curious, like, I want you to get into some of the like work you're doing today, but maybe take us on a little bit of a journey because was this the early entrepreneurial, like, uh, kind of birthing and then like, what, yeah. what, give me, tell me some stories along the way in your development. It's a, it's a great framing. Thank you. You know, what's funny too, is I also found out it was illegal to be a delivery driver until you're 18. I found out later. Uh, yeah, I found out later. Better so to ask like, forgiveness than permission. Illegal, having fun, <laughs> get it done. Um, and I made mistakes, by the way. And like, we didn't prep the kitchen right. The kitchen got slammed, and like, there all sorts of problems in that, which is part of doing something that's fun and creating something. Like, it's never going to go perfect. I've learned that early. Like my earliest entrepreneurial stuff, though, um, would be more of like just leaning into curiosity and asking really weird questions. Like I remember asking my mom and my mom recalls this very distinctly. I started thinking systems level and I would ask her things like who owns the snow plows? Cause I, we lived in a place where there was snow. Um, and so I'd see all these snow plows on the street. I'm like, well, who owns those? And then it was like, and this is like super young. And it was like, then it was, well, she told me, well, the city owns most. Some, there's some private people. Like, where do they all park them at night? Who owns the parking lot? And it was just like starting to try and unpack the game that's going on around me of like, what is happening around me? <laughs> um, and then we're driving and there are these woods that I used to play in. And my friends and I, um, it was at the end of our, our neighborhood I grew up in. And we would, you know, go in there and throw pine cones at each other and play war and build forts. And one day I'm realizing people build houses. And I tell my mom and my dad, I'm like, hey, um, you guys should buy this forest. They're like, we couldn't buy this forest. How do you buy a forest? Like, because they just never done that or thought that. But I was like, you should buy this because I, I saw the world growing around it. Like, and it became one of the premier developments over time. And at the time, this was like probably, I don't know, at least 15 years before anybody had a plan for it at the city. It's like, I'm this like little kid who's like, there's a game going on in the world. So like, that was the first like game theory. Then my dad, fortunately, gave me books to read that were super interesting, like Greatest Salesman in the World, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and Dress for Success. Mm -hmm. I could tie a tie for my middle school basketball team, and I tied my coach's tie, who was like an adult, because he didn't know how to tie a tie. He was like in his 20s. And so like, I could like do a Windsor and stuff. Like I'm going to town, like tying ties, having fun. And, and then there was like the raffles that you would do for selling the raffles for sports or school. My dad taught me something that was really funny and stuck with me. He goes, Nick, when you sell these, they're a dollar per ticket, right? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you know that they're actually $10 for, or 10 for $10? And I was like, huh? So I thought about it and I was like, oh, okay. So then I went door to door, blew everyone away, like just crushed them in sales. Cause I would just go door to door. I'm like, they're 10 for $10. And it was like a paradigm shift for me. That was like super tiny. And, and that simple change started to open up a new framework of the world. That's like, this is all made up. You don't have to follow the rules on the package and you can actually deliver substantial results by breaking the rules and not in like an illegal way, but like just playing a different game altogether. Yeah. But like everyone wants you to play this game, but like, I'm not only just going to rewrite the rules, I'm going to create a whole nother game like over here. And that's like been my work now, but like, so 
I do this. I go house to house, by the way. And like some people, once in a while, someone would say, how much are these per ticket? And I go, they're a dollar. And then just smile. <laughs> and people would just start laughing or shake their head. They'd be like, I'll take three or two. Never would they take one, by the way, because they felt like, I think it was like a sense of shame after like. Just, yeah, like on the lower. Yeah. sell me on 10 and I won't even buy 10 from him. Um, but I did like, I'd crush it and win every time. So I learned that and then got into lawn mowing and would think like, I should start a lawn mowing company. Glad I didn't. Um, and then I started this restaurant um, service thing inside of it and worked at these summer camps as well in parallel. Actually um, threatened to quit. It's awesome. I threatened to quit the Italian restaurant and they told me I can't. And so I was like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, you can't, man. I was like, well, you pay me minimum wage. Like, what do you want to be paid? So I got to increase my hourly pay just massively set my hours and um, got to pick still my favorite shifts. And so I literally like played football. I worked at this like summer camp, worked in nonprofits and would go like moonlight on tasks I wanted because they just so badly wanted me there. Cause I would come in with ideas and creativity and like I brought myself to the task. Cause I found like I could bring myself. It's not just an exchange. It's like bring me and things go better. And so I was being paid more than the servers and like, it was wild. Um, and so then after that, I got more into the nonprofit world. And then all of a sudden I was convinced like, Hey, I want to work with churches and schools doing leadership development for, for teens, middle school and high schoolers. And I'm a high schooler myself, a teen. And so I, I start asking if I could do that. And some guys are like, yeah, you can intern with the middle school. So I do that. Fast forward, do a couple different internships at different uh, churches and had some great experiences, bad experiences. I'll save you all the details. Um, but unless you want to know them later, I uh, got burned in a couple spots, saw the ugly side of things. And then all of a sudden, this one guy, things are taking off with his one church. It's like a couple hundred people when I'm there. It's like, dude, you're the person I need to have run our middle school department. And I'm like 19. I'm getting ready to go off to um, college. I'm 18, actually. I'm 18. Getting ready to go off to college. I turned 19 in October. And he's like, I want you to run it. This is that summer. And he'd been ha hunting me down my whole senior year of high school. He's like, I need you to run the youth department. It's a small church, a couple hundred people. And I worked at a coffee shop too in between that to kind of like after I quit the, the one, I worked at the coffee shop for someone who had a coffee shop that worked in the churches uh, that knew me. And so um, the reason why this guy knew me, uh, by the way, is because my senior year of high school, I quit all sports and I committed to getting to know every single um, student in my high school of like, it was over a thousand kids. And that was like my job for the year. I told my parents I wouldn't get a 4.0. I was like, probably not going to get a 4.0 this year because I'm going to do this instead for work. Like, this is my, like, mission, my value. And so I started some clubs and got kind of crazy at school. Uh, had a blast. Was That was my first year at this big public school. Um, ironically, got voted um, uh, prom king. And, like, first-year kid who just, like, met all, the, like, the band geeks and the special ed kids and the drama people and the thespians and, the, you know, the gamers and teachers and just, like, why, I would go to the Why did you do that? Because I was raised in a culture that humans matter and I'm long on humans. And I saw that my humans were like, they were struggle busing. And my peers were and, like, they didn't have a good identity and they were making bad choices. And I knew how hard it was for me too, as like a 14, 13, 14, 15 year old. Like, it was hard, dude. There's chemicals cutting loose in my body. Like, I want to touch boobs. 
I want to like, uh, you know, like eat bad food. I want to like, all these things are going on. And I'm like, ah, chemistry. And like, I'm going to get someone pregnant. Like I'm in a Christian <laughs> school and like, like, just like struggling. And I, and I grew up in this framework of like nonprofits and churches and a big picture. And so I had this, I had this like theory that there was this energy in the universe that liked me, made everything and was right and good and beautiful. And like it was harmony, like, like whatever that is. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't dissonance. It was harmony. And that I, I came to understand that like the scriptures, the Bible, which was what I was obsessed with at the time was more of this book of this power trying to create harmony through this chaos of like us idiots and trying to use people to create harmony in like cool ways so he would like sometimes some people would like channel him and be agents of harmony mm -hmm. and so i realized I was like maybe i could be an agent of harmony and so i decided because i looked around and saw how bad it was it wasn't like the machine he designed to be the harmony was the church and it was not it was a, it was an actually chaos agent and then also like a really sad like yeah if you're playing a piano like you'd hit it and it's like a fart noise where like people just show up and argue about color of carpet and i was like yeah. what is this stupid and so i i saw it as like this like, cool harmony that like broke poverty and like depression and loneliness and all this like took care of the orphan and the widow and set the captives free from jail and brought them back to a place of wanting to do beauty in the world. And I was like, this is a cool story. And, and I believed that like, then maybe, and it was like, it might be crazy, but I believe that like my job was in on earth was to be like, all right, I guess this is what we're supposed to do is these bags of me. Just like try and be those agents of like harmony. And so I just started looking for experiments around that and, and re reading as much as I could understand it in books and, consuming this framework that mapped kind of to like my childhood of like hanging out with down syndrome kid when I'm three that I was like, we're just homies. And it was like fun. It was harmony. Right. And he would get mad. And then they'd have me explain why he couldn't punch. And it was like, All right, we're doing, we're doing the harmony thing. And so it just kind of like balanced out. And so then when I get to high school, I'd gone on this journey where I saw the world was pretty like, uh -uh. And it brought me to a place where I was like, well, shit's not great. And I've got this like building of people in high school that like, and by the way, I went to a smaller private school first and my class was like 20 people in the school. So I was like, I'm going to go to the bigger one. And I got a closed audience to where like, I got to see if I can bring harmony here. Like, what can I do to create change in a year? So buckled up and just went buck wild, man. And it was the best. Like I had a lot of fun Would meet with the counseling department. I was like, all right, what do we need to focus on? And was like advocating for the, like the, the students and starting to bridge authority with the masses, which is like an early indicator to like my, my journey, by the way. You had, you had a literal, you, you actually connected with administration in this year when you're like, I'm going to get to yeah. one year. I would actively meet with the principal, vice principal, <laughs> counselors, consistently superintendent of the district. Um, <laughs> Yeah, okay. Legit. Yeah. It was yeah. like full on throwing rallies and like it was crazy. It's crazy. Um and creating like book clubs on campus and like doing all this in high school. And so then I 
I run that test and I'm like, all right, this is good in some ways. And so then I get hired by this guy who's like, I need you to come run the youth department. That's why he like hunted me down. He's like, you're the dude. And I'm like, all right. And so I was like, I just gonna make things up. So then I went and like made things up there and did that. And that that was an experience of like middle school. Then I got to work with the high school. Then I got to work with the college students. And this went on for years. And by the time I was done there, that place went from 400 people to 14,000 people. It was the fastest growing church in America. Uh, we had multiple campuses, like sports fields and like a thrift store and food banks and like shutting down food banks in the city because we were like serving all this. And, what, like, what church was this? It was called Real Life Ministries. Okay. And uh, it's, it's uh, so like got to know the youth specialties people like Mike Iaconelli and uh, Doug Fields and uh, Heibel's crew back at Willow Creek at Saddleback. Um, just found myself in this world where like it was interesting, right? And huh. harmony and chaos agent, right? Um, the church was really beautiful and it hurt me. It hurt my family. It hurt other people. And, but also in a great quote, the church is a whore and she's my mother. Yeah, um, and great. yeah, I love that one. And so when, when I say that, I don't mean like religion is a whore and she's my mother. Religion is just a whore. Um, the church is a whore and she's my mother. And like, it's, it's, we're the whores. That's the funny part. That whole quote, by the way, yeah. like you and I have the ability to be this beautiful uh, agent of, of harmony and bring it together but then we have like moments of chaos and every day dude every day and so when we all get together sometimes we all vibrate with harmony once in a while and then all of a sudden someone will be a chaos agent and then it vibrates more and then this entity can turn into chaos all of a sudden and then back to harmony and so it's this i like the harmony chaos harmony dissonance analogy because it's so true good um and so did this with the churches and then and, and the schools, and we ran trips all over the world doing leadership development. And I learned, all right, this audience, teenagers, don't like to behave because they don't have purpose. They don't have passion, they don't have pride. They're just kind of like, Ugh. and adults are like, they suck. We want them to not do drugs and make babies and drink and, we're like, and cuss. I'm like, well, that's not a good why. <laughs> like, and so I developed some like fun programs. I had got to experiment with psychology and like, how to design experiences that unlock um, bigger purposes and goals and then structure skills acquisition and like growth towards a goal and, and have professional dialogue and help people have boundaries or rules with reasons. Rules without reason creates rebellion, right? So help, help these teenagers pick a bigger myth they could believe in and like want to move towards and then structure the scaffolding and get them towards that myth or the goal and then provide them with experiences that celebrated them and they got to celebrate each other on that journey. And so we just had a blast, man. Um, Middle East and Africa and South America, all over North America, doing these like experiences and tours and local, regional, national, international trips. And um, 20, 21 years old with over 70 kids in Arusha, Tanzania. I got to run that trip and having hundreds of thousands of dollars in bags um, and like setting up internet cafes in like 2003 in like the bush. And so did that and had some like real, real, real shit, dude. Um, kids in my office telling me that they're in incestuous relationships and their brother and sister 
uh, and that they've been molested by a family member. Um, kids who committed suicide after they got a speeding ticket, a reckless endangerment ticket, and the girlfriend got mad, and they got called and had to go, I'm 19, go to the house and uh, meet with the mom and the dad, and the girlfriend wanted to come over that yelled at the boyfriend. And then she was sad too. And so like how to navigate that kind of harmony and chaos, disharmony to bring harmony to it. Um, kids who died because they were racing their friends in a pickup truck and a kid was racing them on his bike and he didn't make it through the intersection, got hit by a fire truck that was going too fast and his head wrapped around and all of his buddies in the back of the fire truck saw it all. Um, and I got to perform that funeral. Um, star athlete, his heart exploded. Um, so just like did it dude um, I say that I, I remember a time a, a family who had kids in foster care uh, they were foster parents they got busted by the cops they were members of the church got busted by the cops for putting um, uh, hot sauce on the kids assholes as punishment what? for kids they didn't like yeah, yeah, yeah weird shit I share all this because um You know, I've seen it, man. Um, I've, I've been in it. I've walked in the Middle East with a Jew, a Muslim, and a, an American nerd kid uh, walking along talking about, hey, you guys happy we just caught Saddam like that month? And then say, we knew his bark. We knew his bite. We don't know what comes next. That's what terrifies us. It'd be fascinating to come from a nation mm. that thinks the whole world should behave like them and yet creates war on other people's soils that never touches theirs oh to never have bloodshed and like having those haunting statements from people like that that were my friends drinking turkish coffee in jerusalem and palestinian controlled places in bethlehem where you go in and sit in a back room and um like i haven't you know i haven't lived at all but like that was a season of like i kind of see the humans and, and yet yeah. also saw so much beauty where like hundreds and thousands of kids would choose these incredible things and like change their whole lives and run from drugs, run from alcohol, run from bad behavior, depression, not because it was bad, but because it wasn't going to get them to what they believed in. And they had a, a, re, a why, right? Mm -hmm. And so they were willing to do really crazy stuff for the why. So that was like a whole season that taught me a lot. And then I, I had uh, this weird pivot where I had an offer to get involved in like starting companies with some of the dads and um, then who had kids in my programs and consult for them. And so I did some consulting and then one, two of them said, hey, let's start a company. And at the same time, I was still involved in some nonprofit stuff uh, called Mythos Project. We do storytelling nights and kind of similar to what we're doing now. And uh, simple mentoring was the other thing we did in schools. And uh, through, through that, we, you know, my consulting and the first company, these guys had an idea. One was an incredible psychologist, world-renowned. Um, other one was an entrepreneur and investor. And I was just this, like, kid who knew systems and games and worked hard and liked the world. And they were like, what if we could create a better way for people to train for their marriage and family and psychology licensure exams? I was like, tell me more. And they're like, yeah, this guy trains people on this thing called Skype. And he does these, like, online sessions with everybody. And he does phone calls and like, no one's doing internet-based stuff. And I was like, okay, tell me more. And they're like, the whole world is books and CDs. I was like, tell me more. And like, you have to fly places and go to classes. Like, tell me more. 
So they're like, Hey, what if we, what if we put it on the internet? So fast forward, um, like I became friends with BJ Fogg who wrote tiny habits and the psychology of Facebook out of the Stanford behavior lab and the psychologist who designed the training modules for NASA, for industrial organizational and for all the astronauts. And I hired all these people to come work on domains for us. I got banned by some of the largest lobbyist groups and the company that protected the test banned them, their employees from talking to me. I hired newspaper editors across America to edit the curriculum that we developed with all the PhD students who we paid students to do their domains. Mm -hmm. And then editors from the newspaper would come in after the domain experts would review it. And then they would edit it. Um, still had a ton of mistakes when we put it live um, and then gave away the curriculum for months to get it cleaned up. But we're the first put on the internet. Fast forward, um, that company owns over 90% of the test prep market and curriculum market for psychology. Wow. Uh, and so one of the founders of that, um, we bought a bunch of assets from KKR, which is a big investment firm. So I had no idea what that meant. So I got to figure out that. It was cool. Um, and that was the first time I like I made money. And I was like, huh, this is weird. Like this is like a value for value on a different level where it's like still like a mission where people were paying more for the books, worse experience, um, high level of stress. And we came in to like lower their stress, lower their costs, help them pass better and serve these people who had their why really bad scaffolding to get them to their what yeah and so came in and served them with a really beautiful tool we had to do a lot of hard work man i was up late at nights i was flying around canada hawaii dc but we cracked that nut and we changed the game and i did it again in real estate um with a product um and living in philly at this time and we're in philly uh, uh, just uh, Fishtown, like Northern Lips. Fishtown. Fishtown. I spent a lot of time there. I I spent my sabbatical in Kensington, just down the block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. Uh, I know the simple way very well. Yeah, they're right. Yeah, right next door to one another. Yeah, I know that crew, man. Um, so that's one of my favorite books. I tell tell a lot of people about that book um, from him. And so living in Philly, uh, then I moved to LA, started another tech company there that was doing business intelligence. So all these were like tech based. Um, one was a prop tech company and funny stories about how I exited that. I could tell you sometime, but it was just looking for, I don't, you don't need to know about the companies. Let me tell you about the thing this is what, what matters for anybody listening to this. Yep. I knew that mobile phones were cool and like a remote control for life and the internet was cool. And I knew that there were audiences and in industries who weren't being treated well. And if I could give them a better tool that paired to a delivery system they liked, then I could improve the quality of their life. And so example in real estate, I'll give you the quick and dirty. People buying homes want to see photos of a home that are big, high, high def, and lots of them fast. They don't like or care about music or motion on the photos. Realtors and people selling the homes like their photos to have music and to move on flash. And this is in the mid 2000s, right? So they like shit to be really cumbersome. Buyers who actually they do care about the most don't. Mm -hmm. The realtor shows someone that they can do music. No one cares about the music over here, but the seller does. So if you can tell the seller, this is actually what people want over here, then, the, then actually the, the realtor and the seller is more compelled to go with your platform. So we came in and realized the MLS was only letting people upload like five photos per home because of the uh, servers. So we came in and designed a whole software that could index 
all the photos for all the devices. So you had like a BlackBerry, a Windows phone, like Brew. Um, we were doing everything under the sun. So if any device approached it, we could deliver high-res photos in under five seconds. Mm. And so whatever the device was, tablet, TV, computer, and built, a uh, again, a company that served the end user everyone wanted much better and then sold like gangbusters to all the major brokerage houses, then got called by MIT and did a presentation there and then sold the company eight months in, did my buyout, moved to LA, started another one, similar concept for business intelligence, helping people match based on interest and location, seeing a trend probably now, build a little bit. And it was uh, a yeah. matchmaking people. And um, did some work with Richard Branson and Virgin Hotels or Virgin uh, America, not hotels at the time. And I uh, got kissed by Richard at this point on the lips. And <laughs> uh, joined the Milken Institute and also did some work with W Hotels. And, and fast forward, um, that's like the end of my entrepreneurial career, kind of. And I, then I bridge into Aesop Industries and this whole world. But that's a lot about like my work history. Yeah. And a lot of like me. Sorry, I've again spoke a ton. No, bro, this is what I'm it's what I asked you to do. And and honestly, even now I'm gonna ask you to do it again because I'm just like, all right, cool. Because how's that the end of your entrepreneurial career? Explain that to me when you go then ESOP Industries. And by the way, we I, I feel like we still haven't told listeners exactly like paint the landscape what you do now, uh, what that even is. Uh, we have a bit of the curse of knowledge between you and me. People are listening. Oh, okay. What 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 do we do today? Uh, what is ASAP? Because right? I think they brought us up to now. What do right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my my journey is what's funny, right? Like um, nonprofit, like teen suicide stuff, like startups, MIT, Richard Branson. It's like, ah! um, her the Hearst family. Like I got to know all these people, right? So ASAP now, and interesting that you caught on that. It was like a, a weird Freudian slip. I'm like, it's the end of my entrepreneurial journey. So <laughs> the other three companies, legit, I built, and I was super happy to sell them because it wasn't a mission. Okay, a wait, time out. So you're, by the way, you might have noticed when I read your summary, you have this thing that's like four-time entrepreneur, three exits. And I was like, I'm not saying that. That's not true um because i've now that, founded five more yeah i'm like that's not and, true and but, but, but what you're saying the end of my, end of my that's what i'm getting at because you're saying the end of my entrepreneurial career is the end of me selling companies i'm doing something i plan to be with forever now that so, doesn't so, make it not entrepreneurial so let me tell you let me tell you why i'm struggling with the language right because i think language is fun right language is nothing more than vibrations in our mouth that we agree upon what they mean Ten for a dollar all right. And so when I think about the word entrepreneur or when I think about the word maker or scientist, you get a stigma, right? Yeah. An entrepreneur, I view as somebody who's going to um, see an opportunity, build a better mousetrap, crush it and exit, make profit and be like, we did it. People usually benefit in the long haul. Super good. I'm down. I'm down. I'm down. I'm down. But it's transaction. And so like for me, I took a skill set I had around my ability to do something unique and applied it to problem sets. Like I can do this anywhere. Show me a problem set. I could probably with you, we could probably build like a, a 30 to $40 million company within like a three year period. Like I like the game brother, like show me the problem. Yep. And so 
why I no longer consider myself an entrepreneur, and it's interesting, in our organization, ASOP Industries, we try to avoid using the word entrepreneur to describe all the people we work with. I'll tell you what it, this is in a second. But we use the word creator instead. Because creator transcends any kind of job, and it's a sense of purpose, pride, passion, identity, like you know the why behind your what. So now I can be doing science, and I can be a creator. I can be a welder and I can be a creator. I can be a chef and a creator. I can be a, a, a hardware designer and a creator, a software designer, and a creator, a founder, a creator. And so like it's taking away the stigma of like, I'm a maker. Look at my steampunk mustache. It's like, yes. And the bigger myth is that we're creators, yeah. which is like the myth I'm actually trying to pin down for the world that we've lost. No, it's really a whole nother. We, we so, locally here have used the language of builders, which is why build stood out to me when I was going through the list. Yeah. Like, builders. Yeah. Uh, and and, and I, like, yeah. I like being builders too. The stigma with builders though is it's builders build houses, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. When you say, yeah, that's often will happen. I'll be like, we're builders. Or like, so, oh, and so what's a, what's a creator make? Like the universe? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, that's right. really good. That's helpful. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I like creator because I like to reclaim language and words and steal them. And so creator is mine. So like, I move from being an entrepreneur to a creator. Mm -hmm. And I, it's funny, I wouldn't even like, consider my work in nonprofit as entrepreneurial, even though I started programs, nonprofits, but it was, it was entrepreneurial. So I've always had the gift of this, and now I'm a creator. So yes, Aesop Industries. So we're a collective of four sub-companies that I've, I've uh, been fortunate to be a founder, co-founder of all of them. Aesop Industries is on a mission to tell the world a better story. And our core business is that we deliver human and economic performance in service of a goal. And so we have clients like real estate developers, governments, corporations, family offices that all want humans to come alive in a certain way in service of a goal. So human and economic performance, right? Cities want humans to come alive for a stronger tax base, be the number one city in the world, woo woo. Right. Um, corporations want their humans to come alive, their employees or their customers, yep. because there's more loyalty, engagement, retention. Um, real estate developers want the humans around them to come alive due to their campus, because now that's the place to be. That's the place to rent. That's the yep. place to go. Yep. Return to work doesn't hurt anymore. Family offices want humans to come alive and perform because maybe they're giving back to a town to make it better. Maybe they own a bunch of real estate and they want to make it better. Maybe they need a tax write-off and they want to like make their old hometown awesome. So we have four entities, Innovation Collective, Build Cities, Realign Ventures, and IC Rebuild. Innovation Collectives comes into a target and we do analysis and strategy work to put together what we call a flourishing plan uses appreciative inquiry, all of our knowledge base, our tools we've developed over decades of the work I've done with teens, startups, venture work, and now a decade of working in economics. So I merged psychology and economics. And we, we do this alchemy where we create a model that becomes 70 plus events per year. Most cities turns into 100 plus, led by the town. And we call this a social infrastructure. And so the social infrastructure is built on this flourishing plan is built on three principles, people setting goals of who do they want to become and what do they want to create people learning skills and teaching skills in service of those goals, 
and gatherings built around inspiring, educating, and celebrating people on that journey of those goals of what's the most beauty and value you want to add to the world, right? So we create social systems and environments that cause that to happen. We deliver that strategy with the playbook, teach people how to do it, the budgets, all the software tools they should use, who in the community they should use as the activators, we call them. And then we have immersion trainings when they say, cool, put this playbook to work. Then what we do is we support them in that or they can run it on themselves. The support is we have immersions, we have monthly one-on-ones, we have an exhaustive knowledge base, we have project management software, we have marketing tools, KPI reporting docs, everything we've built over a decade just sits in a portfolio for everyone to use with prompts of what to use when with links. I mean, it is, we've made this stupid simple, right? Plus, we then do um, quarterly meetings with our client to say, here's the data, it's working. How do you want to change it, move it in service of activating humans in service of a goal? Now, this isn't manipulation of people. This is helping people with agency gather to set goals they love, to learn skills they need, to teach them, and to celebrate each other. So these activities accomplish a goal secondarily. So it's a Venn diagram how they overlap. So we use human psychology to accomplish economic goals and to service industry trends. So we turn these into economic engines in a very beautiful way. Now, the other companies really quick, Build Cities, it's a SaaS. It's a software product that serves this kind of activity for cities anywhere in the world. You go to buildcities.com, you can download it right now. And it's already in over 200 cities and growing and you can soon you'll be able to also not only list your projects but have your skills see buildings on the projects uh, or in the communities you can go to and hang out in like forts it'll also have um crowdfunding coming up and you can create your own event so it's a a competitor to meetup.com uh airbnb for like flexible work crowdfunder like Kickstarter all into one ecosystem that you can also own. That's a whole other thing we could get into another time as a co-op. Um, but this also serves as what's cool, John, is a data pipe for cities, a data pipe for family offices and for real estate developers to see what's going on within their community, right? Think about having a heat map or a dashboard. Yeah. Think about putting bounties on there. Now you are incentivizing behaviors you hope to see happen. Show up to the campus on this day and host meetups. We'll give you 50 bucks. Now, instead of spending 10 grand on hosting an event, you just incentivized a thousand people with 10 bucks. Very different. Yeah. And they're going to come host events. And so we're flipping um, economic development into a city building exercise as a team sport. And so our real long-term goals, governments drop their economic development dollars and tax dollars onto this platform to incentivize people to move in a way with agency that they really want and to cut out the middleman, efficient markets to the max. Now, other two companies, one is Realign Ventures. It's over 300 mentors and executive scientists, entrepreneurs, founders, all creators, people of character that are wobbling towards the finish line trying to make the world a better place. These people come into these communities and host pitch days we call show and tell, whereas people getting to show off their projects. It can be art, film, it can be hardware, software, whatever. And we also look at the deals on Build Cities We also have a venture studio we look on the deals on and we're an investment fund as well. So a two and 20 split, 15% of the general partner returns go back to the communities as non-dilutive grants off the general partners. We manage capital, we invest in incredible deals that come from our mentors, the communities and all the pipe as people are becoming alive, they're unleashing the creator in them. 
fourth and final company in this collective was called IC Rebuild, which then goes and looks at pursuits of real estate, does property management, community management, does social infrastructure design for large developments. Um, we're, we're talking with developers who own or manage over 800 million square feet right now um, for this whole stack. And our, 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 our whole mission as an entity is we want to unleash the creator and people in a way that heals communities and economies. Our clients, corporates, real estate developers, governments, and family offices. Who benefits in this? All the people who get to show up and like actually come alive doing magic as yep. their social time. So it solves for, by the way, we believe the goals, growth, and gatherings, which are goals, skills, and uh, events. So it's goals, growth, gathering. Those three inputs, when done in harmony as a town, transform the results in your mental, physical, economic, and civic health of a community. And we're proving that data science right now. We're trying to create what we call as a flourishing score so that a city, a real estate campus, a corporation, and an individual can have a score that shows this is my input efforts here and how I'm helping others do it. And here's how it's impacting me here. We only need to show what is impacting them here, by the way. They just need to show these once I can prove this correlates. So we're working with hospitals. We're working with big data houses, data science teams from large organizations across America that care about the dumpster fire we found ourselves in where 77% of youth don't qualify for military service, where 52% of people are lonely, where depression is the number one disability, where 70% of people are financially insecure, where on and on and on, I can talk to you about the trillions of dollars being wasted on people not humaning well. So that's us. You, I'm, so I have a ton of questions out of all of that, but um, are you, the flourishing thing stood out to me, the metric, and I, I understand that's in development. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with the human flourishing program that uh, uh, Harvard uh, yeah. published? Uh, was it couple, several years ago now, I think. Um, I'm, one, I, nothing about that other than just curious if you if there was. I, I think, I think the indexes are neat, but what it reminds me of is like, oh, cool. If we hug each other, we'll be, we'll flourish. Okay. Like, I, I went to I a presentation on it and I was like, this is all obvious. So, like, so let me just <laughs> hold my beer for a second. Vivek Murthy, Surgeon General of the United States. God bless him. Bloomberg. Harvard. Everyone. Brookings. Heartland Forward. All these data houses. All these people. You know what they're doing? They're pointing out obvious things. Hey, pick up the phone and call your grandma. Thank you to someone. <laughs> Legit is a damn tweet from the Surgeon General. Mm -hmm. Or an, an, a, a post on X. Sorry, Elon. Fascinating, right? That's great. If I'm not proud of myself, how hard is it to pick up the phone and call my grandmother? Can you for a goddamn second index on the psychology of humans where we are at? Instead, let's stop pretending what the world could be if we were optimal. And let's look at what is. Is is a dumpster fire. We need to meet people where they are at and re-architect. The project-based incentive model is a way to rethink welfare, unemployment, disability, social security, high school and college, all rolled into one mechanism that redistributes research and development dollars and entitlements 
into one pipe that gets humanity to gather. Right now, welfare is exclusionary. It is isolationary. You get it. Does it pull you together in a community that helps you grow? Oh, hell no. You get a card so you can like pay for your shit so no one knows who you are. Well, and it'll, and it'll actually disincentivize things like family because- And I'm not saying, yeah. look, and I'm not saying people don't need dignity. But can I just for a second say social security, our senior citizens are committing suicide. They're depressed, they're lonely. And we give them checks that literally show up without any interaction. By the way, what I wanna, happened? Ahead, what happens if we tie this? What happens if we tie this whole thing that like Harvard and Brookings and Vivek and everyone's trying to get people to call grandma or to like go and eat dinner with their neighbor? And if we tie it to a system where people can show up, yeah. be inspired, set a goal, and pick something out of a database that matters for the market to get done. And say, I want to work on it with my skill this way and try and challenge it. And they receive a project-based incentive instead of welfare or universal basic income to then work on this. It is no longer a handout or a hand up or some patronizing suggestion. It is a handshake, a contractual relationship from entities that give a damn, they really do, to people who are really trying to find some traction in the world. And we continue to patronize them by saying, Look, if you just did this, your life would be better. I'll pay you some money to go to an event that teaches you that this is important. We'll track data on people who do these things that they're happy. Don't you want to do these things now? Don't you want to not commit suicide? We'll do a suicide awareness thing. Let's put up a billboard. Does that work? Fuck no. And do you know why? Because we're not existing in the world that is. The is is where we need to meet people and say, hey, guess what? I think you have magic and I need you. Let's have a handshake. I'm going to ask you to join me in some endeavor where your value, I'm going to request it. I'm going to compensate you for it. Instead of a welfare check, it's a project-based incentive. Show the fuck up and start doing something for this nation. And not in a way that's insulting, but like, we need you. Come on, let's go. Let's row together and build a bright future. And you turn poverty-stricken, mentally broken, emotionally dissatisfied, obese and sick and hatred into America's innovation engine of research and development where people start to declare publicly, I want to create this. I need to learn this skill. And we celebrate each other. And guess what that does, John? It bridges and bonds us. I don't care who you sleep with, who you vote for. I don't care any of your beliefs about religion because the thing I believe in the most, the shared myth that we're all seeking deep in our bones is knowing that you have magic in you and you owe it to me to get it out. And I owe it to you to get mine out. And I need your help and you need mine. Let's get together in our neighborhoods and unleash that magic, a myth that we can believe in that transcends the broken narrative we're all trying to hinge on right now because it's breaking and destroying our nation. And telling someone to call a grandma when they actually are on the edge of committing suicide is stupid and insulting. So good. Well, in the picture you're painting, it's, it's interesting we use the language of social security for like this check that shows up when you don't have to interact with anyone. Um, and, and I understand that because it comes from everybody a little bit in some sense, but like, you know, when I, years ago, um, I was in the, one of the first things I did in this, like when I moved, basically I was young. And when I first started engaging in like the city, like working among anyone that was poor, like didn't look like me or come from the kind of suburb that I had grown up in, I was at this like YMCA program. It was an after school program called success centers that they ran. And it was, uh, at risk youth basically they got nowhere to go after school they're all going to come here there's like 
uh it's all black and brown and then the, the like two white jewish kids there and like that was you know it was whatever and i man what a i feel like they taught me everything i needed like they were the best mentors these kids but there was a day this kid came in and he had a king size snicker bar when he showed up which you know i wanted i wanted everybody in the room wanted um but nobody you know people might ooh, ooh you got a king size them get some whatever but he he on his own nobody no adult said anything to him he opens this snicker bar and i watched this kid break off a piece and hand it to a kid break off a piece and hand it to a kid break off a piece and hand and to every single kid in this program he broke off a piece of this king size snicker, snicker bar and handed it to them to where when when it was all over he got a bite of his king size snicker bar and I remember walking out of the room and I'm not like a hugely emotional dude, but I was like trembling. I was like, I can't, I feel like I'm going to puke. Like I'm, I'm like, I think this is what they call choking up. <laughs> I was like, I was like, Oh, he is a better human being than me. Like that, yeah. that. I was just like, I'm so blown away by what I just witnessed. No one made him do it. Talk to him about it. And then years of pondering on this, I started thinking, you know, it's interesting that he knows what it is like to not have that snicker bar. And he invested that wisely into his community because tomorrow he might be the one without a snicker bar, but somebody else might show up with one. And that's what, and it, it occurred to me. And then over the years I've watched in poor communities, like especially when they've been displaced, the cost to these poor communities is really great because the, the actual currency, the actual value that they have is something like technically what I would call social security, where it's like the, this is grandmas looking out for one another. This is not call your grandma, but this is an integrated community. They don't have anything, uh, let's say monetarily, they might be a housing totally. project, but they've got this like deep sense of social security. And it's just interesting. It's social like, infrastructure is like the technical yeah, term they use. That's like exactly. This is all kind of work together in that. And then what's interesting to me, like one, I just want to tell you that to go, it's what I hear in like this thing you're framing. Yeah. But when you say what is is a dumpster fire, I think it's I actually think you're right. So not just you're right, but like um, I, I'm curious on your the lens. So for me, that immediately says like what comes to mind is just the school of thought that is existentialism, which I think was a real critique of like what, what do they call like idealism philosophically, like what should be what the what the sure. ideal is, what the thing we're striving for. But rather than going, all right, how about this? Like, this might be meaningless. You're definitely going to die. It hurts. You're free and responsible. And that's paralyzing. That's what is right now. And then and then what is on top? That's just like the human given overall time. Totally. But then like so, on top of that now, societally, what is? I believe. What is? So I, I believe what is only exists for this moment right now. We're in a new is, literally. And and your is and my is can change literally that fast. The choice of the food we eat, the thoughts we carry, the water we drink, the, the consumption. Think about these as ports. These are ports. These are ports. These are ports. These are ports. All these things are ports that are intaking data, nutrients, all this stuff. Yeah. This truly then becomes your thoughts and your chemistry. And so 
This is a change of your code base. You have genetic code base from your family of origin, the food they ate, the patterns they held, the things they taught you. You have thought loops, you have a computer program. And so literally, quite literally, you can change is, not only for yourself, mm. but you can change is for the whole world. And like my game I'm playing is, how do I continue to level up my is anywhere I go with myself where I am my highest priority to make sure I am on my A game, my sons, my, my the people I love, my, my girlfriend, my parents, like that is like next ring of my is. Then I'm like, I want to make sure they're on their A game, brother. And then it is my mission, which is this world to create this transformative is. And so this is like when I say it's no longer entrepreneurial. Sure, I founded five companies in this. But like I'll, I'll pour every penny back into this damn thing because this is about changing the future of capitalism and late stage capitalism and welfare and education and healthcare to to awaken the creator in all of us so that what is is not what has to be. And so existentialism, it, it's less about being this existential crisis, like it's all meaningless. Instead, it is being honest about myself. Do you know how few people, John, are willing to sit with their most perverse version of themselves? Mm -hmm. And it is actually an incredibly powerful thing to look at yourself and grab yourself by the neck, like a little puppy or like a doll, if you could imagine, like a mama, mama bear grabbing up a cub. And like grab, grab little John, at the end of the day, take yourself out here, look at you with two things, just a ton of curiosity, maybe three, a ton of curiosity, a ton of compassion, and a little bit of humor at this weird fucker named John. Because I guarantee you, you had some weird thoughts that don't make any sense. Promise you. <laughs> Promise you. <laughs> I guarantee you, you had some beautiful and brilliant thoughts. I guarantee you, you did good things for wrong reasons. I guarantee you, you did great things without even thinking about it. I guarantee you, you were silly. And the more we can get to a place where we're honest and then ask the question of who does this, who do I really want this guy to become and what I want him to create that adds the most beauty and value to this world. How do I get there? How do I contain this like weirdo into like a machine with ruthless routines that give him the scaffolding to get there? the type of community he needs, the environment, the tools. And so that's just ground zero is this little weirdo. And then the next one then is the people you love. So then teach them how to do that and do it with them and laugh with them and be honest with them. And then it's the circles out, dude. And, and so it's not existentialism. It is an honesty in a belief that I believe someday we will measure success of an individual and of a city and of economy based on the flourishing of their people. And I will bring that score to this world with brilliant people that I work hard with for the rest of my life. I will die trying to be the next Milton Friedman, the next great mind that tries to bring about an awareness in what economics is because we've ran the experiment of industrialization, capitalism at this run, democracy of, of communism, of the left and the right. I think there's something that transcends communism and capitalism. We've seen the collapse of religion. And I believe there is a greater myth that harmonizes what we would currently call economics and human craving psychology. We start to see this merger where it's about 
let the machines be the machines and let us be the creators in a way that really brings around a more beautiful and valuable world. Let's hold each other accountable and structure to that. I'm on that train. Man, amen. I love it. I And by the way, the, I was like watching the time and going, man, then we got to wrap here. But I was wanting to get in the question I ask everyone, which I believe you just answered, so we don't need to address it, is I ask everybody, what is success? And I think you just <laughs> said, like, well, here's how we're going to measure success. Well, I'll tell you what my success would be. Yep. Um, it is it is breathing my last breath, surrounded by people I love, and going, damn, that was a fun ride, and I love these people. I love it. Bro, I know you got something to get to. I really, really, really appreciate your time, your work, your passion. I'm, I'm Thanks, so man. grateful that I connected with you, and I'm, I'm hoping you and I get to do this a whole lot more. Feel the same way, man. It or not, because uh, there's a real kinship uh, here, and I'm, I'm grateful to find someone like you. I, I feel the same way, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself, and I'm sure you're proud of yourself if you sit long enough. Mm-hmm. And it's not a place of arrogance or pride, but like. Huh. it's kind of happening like i'm working really hard but like i, I like myself and i hope you like you uh because yeah. i like you and, and <laughs> i try not to say like i'm proud of you because it feels like i don't have that right um but like i'm i'm impressed by the work you're doing too man and i enjoy it so if anybody wants to say hi they can yes yeah, tell people how to get in touch with you yes yeah, as you said, they can find me on any social media thing. I have a podcast called the American Dream Factory 2 as well over there. It's on like American Dream Factory 2. But like, please. Is that where you just put out, you have three chapters of your book you just put out. I have the whole you. thing on there, dude. The whole thing's there now. Yeah. And all by right, the way. Check I'm, it out. Go, yeah. Tell them all the stuff. Tell them all the things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go to flourishingpledge.com. Go to asopindustries.com. Um, search me on any social, just Nick Smoot. Um, email me, nick at asopindustries.com. Um, and then from the podcast, I'm actually, I'm almost done with another version of the book that I'm going to be releasing. So I've already been like in this whole, like more storytelling version. And I got oh, rid of the, like nice. the redundant chapters, by the way. That oh, was yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, this is like in here twice. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it's clearly like a draft, but I'm like, bro, I, I prefer that. Better done than perfect. Let's just get it out uh-huh. here. And already, I mean, like, I have a calendar on the wall that is influenced by what I read and better. And I'm like working on plans for the year. And I'm like, thank you for not waiting to get it perfect because that's stupid. Come on. Yeah. So we're all half baked. All right, brother. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you. Yes, sir.